Welcome to Investment Uncut. In Investment Uncut, we cut through the noise when it comes to investing. We're digging deeper to try and bring clarity to your investment decisions. I'm Dan Mikulskis. And I'm Mary Spencer. Investment Uncut is brought to you by the investment team at LCP. LCP provide investment advice to some of the largest institutional investors in the UK, including pension funds, wealth managers and sovereign funds. Find out more at lcp.uk.com. So this week we're talking energy, obviously a really big theme at the moment, and delighted to be joined for that conversation by Andy Bradley, director of Delta EE, a company soon to be known as LCP Delta. Andy, welcome. Thank you, Dan. Very pleased and uh, honoured to be on your podcast. Welcome, Andy. Do you want to give the listeners a sense of the role that you have at, well, currently Delta EE? Yeah, absolutely. So I've been at Delta E for about 12 years, actually. And before that, I had about 20 years in the the downstream oil industry. Delta E is a, a energy research consulting company focusing just on the energy transition. So everything we do is around the shift from a commodity centralized analog energy system to a decentralized, low carbon digital energy system. So everything we do at Delta E is is really around that energy transition space. I've been the director here for over a decade. I've worked across many of our research areas. And yeah, I'm really excited to become part of the LCP a few months ago. Andy, so many things we want to get into here. Before we get into all that, what's one thing we should know about you that we wouldn't find on your CV? <laughs> yeah, I asked my family that and they came up with a few inappropriate suggestions. Actually. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I think the, the one I would like to share is, is a proud achievement for me this year is my cricket team. Actually, I still play cricket after all these years in a third team at my local club in Edinburgh. And we were in a Titanic relegation battle this year with five other teams and we survived. Oh, wow. So we, we're still in East of Scotland Cricket Association Division 4 next season. But it was an absolute thrill and, and really good fun. So, so yeah, you probably won't find that on my CV. Well, did it all come down to the last ball of the season or something? What was the situation? It almost did, actually. It was the last game. Could have gone in many directions. And, and actually, one of the really pleasurable things about the team this year is that we had about four Afghan refugees playing in our team. They came over to Edinburgh late last year as part of the wave coming out of Afghanistan. And they were keen on cricket, so we got them involved in our club. And it, it was an absolute delight to play with them actually which made it a really kind of pleasurable and exciting season on on all fronts. I don't know anything about cricket so I don't don't really know what questions to ask so when it goes down to that last game of the season I mean how how long is that exciting game for is? We play 40 overs in our in our league so it's you know starts at one end so at six half past six something like that you can lose the game but you can still get bonus points for the number of runs you score or the number of wickets you take and actually it was coming down to bonus points and how many wickets do we need to get to be safe and so it was really exciting it was really exciting actually and after and also actually after playing cricket for what 50 years or so this is the first season where we played every single game we didn't have one game that was called off because of rain. We had 18 games in the season and we played all 18, which is an indication of, of the challenge we have, I think, around climate change, to be honest, which perhaps is a segue back. Into the <laughs> what, topic. A, what an excellent segue. <laughs> Go on then. So, so, Andy, can you maybe start by giving us a little bit of background on the energy market and maybe some of the structural features that have kind of compounded or created the current sort of crisis moment that we, we find ourselves in? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's a number of things going on, obviously. I mean, my perspective is more from a, a demand or market perspective. You know, at Delta E, we, we focus primarily around the sort of distribution network and, and distributed or decentralized energy. But, you know, there's been quite a number of things have come together, I think. You know, renewables generation has obviously grown dramatically over the last 10 or 15 years, and that's become a big part of the power mix. 
but really the reality is a lot of the marginal plants so this is the generation power stations that set the price at peak a lot of that plant is still fossil based so it's still burning gas and you know more recently obviously a number of factors coming together you know covid coming out of covid you know reduction in gas storage facilities perhaps in, in the uk certainly but around europe as well ukraine war you know that's led to a kind of intense competition for gas and everyone's for example hunting cargoes of liquefied natural gas to bring that into europe and trying to get those up from asia so that's led to these unprecedented price spikes we've seen in the uk you know that's been made worse really by the sort of decline in north sea gas so we're having to import more and more gas into our own market so you know while we're perhaps not exposed to a sort of physical shortage of supply you know we're exposed to the price in the way that many other countries in europe are so i think all those factors have come together i think the uk is in quite a poor position from the perspective of our housing stock you know we've got some of the most poorly insulated homes across europe actually so you know this summer has been the calm before the storm i think you know this winter could be quite a challenging time particularly if it's a really cold winter but i think you know this combination of, of, of events has really you know jolted us away from having relatively cheap energy and not having to worry about it to kind of bring it front of mind for everybody government and citizens Andy, could we just backtrack very quickly because you mentioned the move from a centralised to decentralised energy system. Could you just explain for the listeners what you mean by that and what that looks like? Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, historically, the energy system has really been set up to work in one direction. So you generate electricity at the power station. You feed that electricity into a transmission grid, which then feeds into a distribution grid, which then goes to a domestic meter, for example, and is you know used to make a cup of tea. You know, the classic analogy being, you know, National Grid having to turn on extra power stations in preparation for half time in the in the FA Cup final when everyone, you know, millions of people won't get a cup of tea. So, you know, the supply side had to anticipate and respond to the demand side. Now, as you get more and more renewable generation coming onto the, the system, you can't dispatch that. You can't control it in the same way. So you can't control when the wind blows or when the sun shines. So the generation of electricity becomes less controllable. So in that context, you need to have other sources of flexibility or storage in the energy system. So you have that sort of pressure to get the demand side becoming more active. So rather than at half time in the cup final, National Grid fires up a number of coal plants. Actually, what you can do is actually you have storage, for example, you might have storage in in thousands, hundreds of thousands of homes. And those small batteries can meet that peak locally. Or you have some storage next to the transformer in your street or perhaps uh, further up the network, which actually provides that flexibility without needing to generate electricity at a centralized power plant. So you have this pressure because of renewables, I think, to decentralize the way the energy system works. And of course, the other big driver is decarbonization you know, the need to decarbonize. And actually for electricity in particular, it is expensive and difficult to store it. So it kind of makes sense to generate the electricity close to where it's used. So solar panels on the roofs, small scale, you know, fuel cells locally, perhaps using hydrogen, but having decentralized generation kind of can reduce the overall system cost as well. So there's decarbonization itself, I think, is a is a driver for decentralization. So you have these pressures to kind of move from this old energy system of you know, electrons flowing in one direction to an energy system that's much more like a network or a mesh, where actually electrons are flying, flowing in many directions at different times of day. 
Sometimes they're flowing in the historical way. Sometimes they might be flowing in the opposite direction. And it's that complexity and that decentralization that is at the heart of the energy transition challenge, actually. Mm. So could we maybe now unpick, you mentioned a few different features at sort of the individual household sort of level. Can we maybe just pick through a few of them? So I suppose you mentioned solar solar panels on the rooftop. What what are the trends that we're seeing in, in that? I realise it's slightly more widespread and you do start seeing them on, on lots of streets, but... Are we speeding up? Are we slowing down? What, what does it look like? Yeah, no, I think we're definitely speeding up. You know, part of the research we do actually is with, with householders. So we've done online surveys and run actually sort of market research panels, if you like, with real homeowners over the last decade or so. So we've, we've tracked people's attitudes and perceptions to you know, changing their energy behaviour in some way. And it, the outcome of that research over time is, is if I'm honest, is quite disappointing slash challenging you know people don't know much about it they don't understand it but they don't know how their home is heated necessarily the level of knowledge and interest is really low so we haven't really seen that much change obviously you've, you've seen the electrification of transport recently with teslas and electric vehicles coming to the fore everyone's seen pv panels all over on different homes so you know there's been subsidies through the fit scheme for example or incentives to get an ev charging point they've encouraged consumer behavior to adopt some of these these new technologies but in terms of the mass market you know the needle hasn't changed that far to be honest over the last decade but clearly when energy becomes much more expensive everyone starts to pay more attention to it and it does sadly come down to cost and price for many many customers in the mainstream so with the current energy crisis absolutely it's become an issue for everybody in the UK and and, and across Europe how to manage down their energy bills now, yeah, you know, there's a number of things going on. I think you know, individual behaviour, I think, is changing. You know, so there will be some demand reduction. I'm sure. You know, people will start turning the lights off, and they will wear a jumper at home, and they will do things that they can do to reduce their bills at the margin. So I think there's inevitably going to be some demand destruction as a result of the higher prices. But for many customers, actually, there isn't much they feel they can do. They may not have much visibility on the relationship between you know how they behave and what their energy bill is and i think that's a key challenge and you know the smart meter rollout will help with that i think that will provide some visibility and help customers understand how their behavior relates to the bill they ultimately get but it's not going to help this winter and that's the challenge i think so you know rooftop solar market just come back to that that is starting to take off and probably sales in the uk have you know probably up to levels when the fit was in in play a few years ago so the the pv market in the uk is really you know has taken off again because people can see that they can generate their own electricity and, and reduce their energy bills the fit being the feed-in tariff which was a form of subsidies that was in place sort of back in the day to get it up and running which then dropped off did it it stopped absolutely it stopped two three years ago i think and basically you can still get a small amount of money for exporting electricity from your home to the grid but it's nothing like as attractive as it was say five eight ten years ago so the solar market has picked up again so there are you know if you like the able to pay segment of the market yeah is is investing and buying in adapting sort of pv on their roofs and you know quite often three quarters of the time probably putting a small residential battery as well so they've got pv and and a storage system in their home insulation is a big play that you know sadly i think the uk's missed out on you know david cameron's government 2015 or something like that you know cut all the green crap that sort of headline around that time unfortunately regulations around energy efficiency that would have been really beneficial 
this winter many of those were scraps and you know i think are only now due to come in in the next year or so actually but you know our housing stock is is very poorly insulated on average compared to many european countries and and therefore you know bills are going to be higher for many people than they need to be but unfortunately retrofitting properties with insulation is expensive and time consuming and can't be done quickly yeah. so it's not a solution for this winter do you think that perhaps the the demand side and what i think that means is what people like us can do in our daily lives do you think that's been a little bit sort of under played in terms of the government narrative I mean, there's a lot of focus on our oh, gas from norway gas from this that and the other overall prices but yeah does it maybe go a bit under the radar the things we can do oh absolutely totally agree i mean you know sitting in edinburgh looking down at the decisions being made in london you know it seems to me whitehall would like to pull big levers you know building a power nuclear power station oh you know that looks you know we've done something that looks really big but you know introducing policies across the country in a decentralized energy world or you know, distributed energy solutions like energy efficiency involves devolving that to local governments or, or local authorities or councils you know to other bodies and it's it's harder i think for government to you know point to that as a big policy win for them so i, I don't want to be too cynical about the way that government works in this country but you know i do think there is a, a bias towards big solutions that you can point at rather than these much more subtle nuanced solutions that that actually in the long term i think are more effective and then also maybe a slight queasiness around t- being perceived to tell people what they should or shouldn't do with their energy sort of thing but then i guess in the absence of that people then maybe make uninformed choices like thinking it's a choice between putting the lights on or heating when that might not be really the relevant choice to be thinking about, you know what I mean? Yes, absolutely. And I think, yeah, you're right. I think there is a, you know, an Englishman's house is his castle kind of mindset that that perhaps is a, is a cultural challenge for us that maybe makes the UK a bit different to, to other European countries. But, you know, the truth is many customers, many consumers do not understand energy in any meaningful way. So they're open to being advised what is the right thing that they should be doing. And, I don't think we've filled that gap in a way that you know would have been possible in this country. Mm. Andy, I seem to remember through the COVID times there was a, an in- initiative to offer discounts on various forms of adding insulation to households. I never really saw any stats on how how good the take up was on that because obviously that would have put houses in fairly good stead for this winter. Yes, indeed, and and there were various obligations put onto energy suppliers, so sort of eco obligations, ECO obligations, and essentially they obligated the energy companies to provide insulation to a certain number of their customer base. So the bigger companies had to do more installation installs. But the the energy companies found it really difficult to get customers to sign up for that. And they were giving it for free, essentially, and customers still weren't willing to to take it. So it was a real challenge and has been a real challenge for, for companies to actually offer it and even i think there have been occasions where where suppliers because they were fined they've received penalties if they didn't meet the obligation you know they offered money so they offered to pay customers you know to get them to adopt it so and i think it's just a signal of of the lack of insight and understanding of many people about you know why this is valuable and you know perhaps we focused a little bit too much in those programs around you know what and the technical solutions rather than thinking about why are people going to do this and there are valid concerns you know every every person's home is you know precious to them and they like it as it is and if somebody comes in and you know rips out 
you know some of the the panels and put some insulation in and doesn't put them in right you know doesn't sort of redecorate it right or something you know there are real world issues like that around quality and and having good craftsmen to do that kind of work but it's an easy win it's a win-win for everybody because once the solution's in it works this winter next winter the winter after that but i think there is a lot the energy efficiency opportunity now with energy prices where they are i think personally is massive and i think there's a lot of private capital you know, seeking access and ways into the energy transition. And I really hope that some of that capital finds a way to, to you know, accelerate the energy efficiency deployment. So trying to think about, and you referred to a lot of these already, but trying to think about some of the trends you're seeing sort of emerging from this current moment. It sounds like energy efficiency would be the first one. What else would, should we be thinking about as the big, big trends that might come out of this sort of moment? Yeah, definitely more energy efficiency, more renewables, I think. Um, for sure. I think flexibility, I would say flexibility, and I'll explain what that is, but flexibility will be a big one. So, you know, I think from a crisis like this, I don't think there will be kind of massive new innovations that we haven't talked about before coming to market. It's an acceleration of things that we already knew about, but perhaps it's going to happen quicker and in a more concentrated way than previously. So I think, you know, so I, I think it's, it's more about more renewables, both large scale and distributed, like you know, rooftop solar, for example, more energy efficiency, which is both fabric. So it's both the sort of the infrastructure of the home. So insulation type measures, but also you know, using digital devices in the home to inform customers about turning equipment off, you know, smart meter data, using that to engage customers and to link their behavior with their energy bills in better ways. You know, so that, so if you like digital soft energy efficiency will have a role but then the third one i think is flexibility where you know as more and more renewables comes onto the system we need to have the demand side being able to respond to the availability of energy on the electricity grid so you know having new markets for if you like demand response so if you can aggregate I don't know, let's say 10,000 electric storage heaters from a housing estate in or housing estates in London, you could offer that as a resource to the, the network operator. So when the, the network is constrained, actually you could turn all of those electric heaters off for say 15 minutes or, or half an hour so that it would provide a service to support the local electricity network. And so that those kind of flexibility models, I think, are really going to become more more important. Yeah, as part of the transition, they would always have happened, but I think that will happen quicker now as a result of this crisis. So you've got those sort of trends, I suppose. Where is the big investment happening and what, what's the sort of innovation push within those within those trends? Well, in renewables, you know, wind and solar, what people talk about, I mean, biogas has been around for a long time, but it's hard to, to scale up quickly. I mean, I suppose green hydrogen is the one where there's a lot of hoopla at the moment. There's been a lot of focus on hydrogen, you know, pre-crisis actually. So it's been a hot topic in the sector for, for three, four years now. You know, so making hydrogen from electricity. So there's different ways of making hydrogen. You can basically process methane, natural gas, and turn that into hydrogen. But clearly that's a, a carbon-based fuel. So it doesn't meet any climate change challenges unless you can store the carbon dioxide produced. But green hydrogen you would typically generate from, say, a wind farm, and you'd use electricity from a wind farm through a, a fuel cell to generate hydrogen. And that you know, green hydrogen, I think, is interesting. You know, you can use we see it being used primarily in sort of chemical, the chemical sector, refining, sort of steel making, those types of sectors in the near term. Yeah, it might be used for heavy goods vehicles and commercial 
trucks as well at some point but you know that's not a quick win you know it's capital intensive electrolyzer industries scaling up costs are coming down but it's probably a you know at least a decade long journey i think before it becomes a really sort of commercial proposition i think for many applications yeah so but i think hydrogen is is definitely a hot area for investment and there's potentially you know a huge market in the in the medium to long term I think some of the other innovations perhaps aren't technology. They're more about how the market works, the market structure. So, you know, coming back to what I mentioned earlier on, you know, the the gas plants are setting the sort of the peak price. You know, the price of gas determines what the cost of electricity is coming out of those gas plants, which is why electricity pricing has become so high. So is there a way of restructuring that electricity market so that not all power producers are paid the same price? So, for example, if you've got a, a wind farm or a solar farm, actually you get a, a lower price or a fixed price, which is de-risk for you because you know you're going to get that price, but you don't get the windfall, if you like, from a peak in the electricity market. So there's lots of discussions in Europe and in the UK around reform of the electricity market and how prices are set. That seems, dare I say it, quite sensible and quite a good idea. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think if you probably if you're owning some of these assets, you're probably quite enjoying the market context at the moment. But actually, if you can see through the the short term and you think about it from a long term perspective, I would have thought it could be quite attractive. It all depends where the strike prices are ultimately agreed, I suppose, if, if we go down that route. But, you know, if you end up with an asset that is largely de-risked in terms of its price exposure and actually you're getting you know, a pretty secure return, then perhaps that's quite an attractive asset for certain types of investor. Yep, I, I can see a lot of the investors we work with might quite like a bit of that, I think. So yeah, I can <laughs> totally agree with you on that, yeah. Well, indeed, indeed I, was, I, was, I was thinking that. And so, you know, it'd be really interesting to see how that discussion develops, actually. So, so and that's a realistic possibility, is it, do you think, that the market can move away from charging these sort of marginal price revenue? Yeah, it's, it's concluded in the recent consultation on uh, market reform in, in UK, and it's being discussed in active, openly in Europe. Actually, the European Commission earlier this week, I think, made some announcements about it as one of the, the proposals in the, in the paper or the program that was put forward just a few days ago in, the, in Brussels, I think. So it's, it's definitely being talked about, but it will need agreement, obviously, across the industry. So it will need the owners of these assets to you know, effectively agree to give up you know, certain rights or obligations or contracts except sort of the new way of, of setting market pricing, I think. But as I say, if it's structured in the right way, it could be it could be a win-win in there somewhere. And at risk of asking how long a piece of string is, what's the kind of timescales that that sort of process might take? Yeah, it's going to be, yeah, I doubt much of this will be in place before this winter. I think it's it's quite complex. I think Remo is due for next year, actually, in the UK. So the UK discussions, I think, will certainly run into next year. Okay. Well, that's quicker than a decade. I was wondering if you're going to say, well, it's five years for this bit and a couple no. of years for that. And yeah, maybe next year might be a bit longer than that in Europe because of the complexity of all the countries. But you know, these things need to move quite quickly. I think for them to be effective. I mean, you know, there's two issues right now. I think in the market, there's a short-term focus, if you like, right now. You know, about pricing and I don't think these sort of new market arrangements can, can be put in place quick enough to affect the pricing for this winter but I think everyone expects next winter to be a challenge as well so you know for them to be useful I would have thought it would be great for them to be in play next year and ready for the next winter and the other real short-term issue obviously is security of supply 
so making sure the lights don't go out this winter yeah so i think that's where policy right now is focused actually but i think strategically energy efficiency is something we should be doing and policy should be supporting you know continuously through this crisis you know during the calm before the next crisis through the next crisis you know it's just something we should be doing it's a no regrets policy so i know it's really boring and people you know don't talk about it and it's not very sexy and all the rest of it but actually it's just such a no-brainer it's really tragic i think that we haven't done more on energy efficiency over the last 20 years and just on that i guess just just to give listeners a practical thing if someone listening to this is thinking okay you persuaded me i want to do something where should we start is there particular sort of research we should go and read what what should we do or try, try and contact a supplier of insulation well, I'd first recommend perhaps come and look at Delta's research actually on on uh, on the topic. When we look in the the home, you know, the big loads are heating, so space heating. Hot water is important in in some homes, and increasingly the other big load in the home is will become EV charging. So you know the appliances actually don't use that much electricity in your home. You know if you've got a power shower that you can use quite a bit if you've got daughters like I have in particular. If you've got direct electric heating, then clearly that's that's expensive uh, or can is a big load. But you know, typically, you know, the energy efficiency, the loads in the home are associated with those types of of device. And it's not rocket science; it's just the thermal properties of the wall, how thick the walls are, you know, what the floor is made of. Do the doors fit? Do the windows fit? What's in the cavity space of the roof? You know, so it's actually the physical material that's used within the within the building itself, and finding scalable solutions to retrofit many homes quickly and efficiently is difficult because, you know, when people buy a home, they make it their own, so they change it. So what's going to work on one home might not work on the house next door often. And there are, but there are some really interesting companies like uh, Energy, Energy Sprung is a Dutch company that, that looks to retrofit whole housing estates in one go. And they have worked in the UK, Newcastle, I think, and they've done various projects. But you know companies like that and Centrica have initiatives in the past where you try and, if you like, build a, a local supply chain because you need craftsmen to come in and do the work. And you need experienced craftsmen to do it, and and you want because you want need quality outcomes. So so can you build supply chains that are a local and can retrofit a street or a village or a housing estate quickly in a short period of time, and then move on to the next one? And I think that it's that type of innovation or approach that that we might need to be thinking about across the country, across all, all, all geographies, really. And from an individual homeowner perspective, let's say I'm thinking about it, presumably I need to contact some kind of energy efficiency surveyor to get a view on what the key things for me to actually do are, rather than assuming that it's doors or windows or insulation or whatever. Yeah, I mean, you can get surveys done for your home, which I, th- I think the Energy Saving Trust in Scotland would do them for free. I think you can get those kind of surveys done to inform, you know, which helps the house homeowner understand what are the, the big wins, if you like, for their property. But it always involves somebody coming in a van, coming into your home and moving stuff around or, you know, banging a hole in a wall or, or whatever it is, you know. And that's a big barrier for people because, you know, what's in it for them? They might not see the results, you know, because the home is put back exactly as it was at the beginning. So what have they got out of this? And so they need to see that their bill is 20% lower or whatever it is. And that's where their understanding about energy consumption and behavior and bills I think is a really important part of the 
this process that perhaps we we haven't successfully managed to join up in the past. But I think there is massive opportunity around energy efficiency, and but the challenge is how to to make it scalable and attractive to customers, and to give customers the trust that the job will be done well to the high standards, and it won't, you know, have a if you like a really disruptive impact on their lives while it's being done. And I suppose the the impact on bills is somewhat disguised in many contracts by the fact that it's bills are phased over a full year, so you pay the same amount every month almost regardless. So the the connection between my use and my bill is not sort of one for one these days for many households, which probably makes it slightly harder. Yeah. And that actually, that's a good point, because one of the sort of areas of innovation that the market might develop in actually is around heat as a service or these as a service business models. So, you know, for example, why is it we, you know, we all have a mobile phone and we pay 30 quid, 40 quid a month, and we use it as much as we want. And we never think about how we use it. Well, can I have a home where I pay my supplier 100 quid a month and I get all the heat and hot water that I need and I don't need to think about what happens with the system? So could the energy supplier actually become the manager of the heating system in my home and manage that system to provide a comfort level and a volume of hot water in my home and for a fixed price? Interesting. Well, then you, you go onto a contract that's streamlined or deluxe type thing. Absolutely. And you can have different variations on the contract. You know, and so I think there is, there is a sort of discussion in the industry, you know, because if we can't get customers to engage and be proactive with adopting some of the technologies, well, can we take it away from the customer and actually just provide them what they want, which is comfort and hot water? So is there a model, is there a business model that allows us to do this as a service? And you know, mobile phone contract might be the best analogy, but you know it, it's hard to do that because you know the reality is you have to you know if you're that as a service provider, you still have to supply that methane, the gas, or the ele- electricity. And I suspect any as a service provider going through this current crisis period would have been extremely challenged <laughs> providing the level of service and and still being a viable propositions so in the, the current crisis i think is is a real challenge for these as a service business models but actually from a customer perspective if the legacy from this is i don't want to be exposed to these horrible volatile you know, price spikes in the future then actually from a customer's perspective perhaps it opens the window for them to think actually an as a service type business model makes a lot of sense because then it gives me if you like fixed pricing going forward for the service so so i, I so I think there is some innovation and some of the companies have been investing in, in trying to develop those ideas over the last two or three years, I think. Andy, taking a bit of a step back then, so what are some of the things, the key things that you're looking at now over the next sort of year, couple of years, next say? Two parts to that, I suppose. One is this winter. I think this winter is all about getting through with the lights on and the homes being warm, actually. So I think energy suppliers are working really hard across Europe, actually, to, to try and protect vulnerable customers. I think in some ways that you might expect this to slow down the, some of the things that are happening around the energy transition, but actually I think everything that needs to happen for the energy transition is helpful to mitigate the impact of the crisis, actually. You know, more solar, more insulation, more visibility on bills, electrification, you know, moving us away from, from being dependent on, on gas with more renewables being scaled up on offshore and so forth. You know, all of those things are needed for the transition, but will help us through the the crisis not all of them this winter but they will all point in the same direction so so i think there's a limit to what we can do if you like in the next three or six months but i think beyond that i think you know focusing on 
more services, it's kind of solutions that empower customers to, to be efficient, to generate electricity themselves, to get rewarded for flexibility so they can you know, give up control of their heat pump to their energy supplier or their EV charger to their energy supplier and then they can get rewarded for that either from a you know actual cash payment or some kind of discount off their bill so that that type of service and solution innovation i think is is certainly something that is really active at the moment and andy what would you say i mean we've we've talked a bit about things that happen at sort of an individual level and a, a centralized level what, where do you see the the need or the role for private capital in this transition i mean it's had a big role to play actually in the decade i've been in the space you know, a decade ago, coming out of the credit crunch, there wasn't really much private capital. Around the middle of the last decade, it started to sort of sniff around. The last two, three, four years has been a huge interest, actually. And it's moved from sort of real early stage investors, not angel, you know, venture capital type investors to, to much bigger funds. And I think those funds, a lot of them have made good returns probably from large scale renewables. But those markets have become a lot more competitive the returns have, have fallen significantly so they're looking for for new opportunities and new asset classes so there's a huge level of activity actually around the energy transition it's not always obvious you know how that private capital should be deployed or is being deployed you know i think heat decarbonization of heat is a huge opportunity but i think private capital is finding it hard to find ways in that it believes are scalable to make it sufficiently interesting but there's a huge you know, opportunity there and, you know, somebody will crack it, I think, and, and do very well from that space. And EV infrastructure is the obvious one that everyone's climbing on board with. And, and, you know, there's been a huge amount of interest in that area. But I think the, the private capital has a big role to play because, you know, in my experience from, from say, from around 2010, a, a lot of the innovation was actually happening in big corporates. And big corporates have corporate businesses that don't take that innovation seriously, really, or know how to commercialize it and i think the private capital has enabled enabled a lot of the innovation innovators that are in the market today to actually prosper and to flourish and to grow their business to some kind of scale and now they perhaps been acquired by corporate but i think the private capital has played a really value-added role in that sense of helping unleash some of the the technologies and innovations that i I suspect would have found it hard to to surface in down the, the corporate route going forward i think it's about scaling it up you know, how do we scale these things up? I, I, you know, I think we've got most of the technologies we need now, actually. You know, still some, some gaps and things, but, you know, we've got a lot of what we need. It's actually, how do we scale them up? How do we drive the cost down? How do we put in place the commercial business models? You know, provide a return to the supplier. You know, how do we put a proposition before a customer that gets them excited and wants to engage with it or buy it? Great. It's been fascinating. Andy, I think we're, we're sort of getting close to time, so we're going to maybe start wrapping up. But what's the one thing you'd like listeners to take away from this whole conversation? I think the, the one thing it would be the energy crisis and the energy transition are really strongly aligned. So the energy crisis is a big challenge. And this winter, I think we're all hoping for a mild winter, you know, might be challenging. But actually, the energy crisis will accelerate the energy transition because what we need for the energy transition is is going to help us through you know beyond this winter over the next two three years say it will help mitigate the impacts of the energy crisis regardless so for anyone who's interested in the opportunities around the energy transition i I would say the crisis should strengthen your interest very clear 
And Andy, what do you think is the most underappreciated thing about the energy markets? About the energy markets? Oh, you can answer investment if you'd like. Well, I was just <laughs> tailoring it to, to your area. <laughs> underappreciated the energy markets. I mean, I think it's a bit like the investor world. I think energy and investor world, right, are quite similar in many respects. And they're quite closely aligned. And they get usually get bad press, I think. But they do a lot of good. I think the investor world, as I've mentioned, I think it's underappreciated because actually, you know, the effective deployment of lazy capital adds a huge amount to the world, I think. So the investor world, I think, does a really, you know, important job at taking us forward as a world, actually. And I don't think that's really ever reflected in the the discourse you see around the investment world. So, you know, I think that is underappreciated. On the energy side, I don't think outside of the energy industry, perhaps it's appreciated how difficult some of this stuff is. You know, the energy grid, the electricity system is a thing of wonder. It really is one of the most complex machines on the planet. We're trying to reform it and re-engineer it for a distributed sort of decentralized energy world while it's operating 24-7. So it's like taking a factory or a jumbo jet, say, and trying to rebuild a jumbo jet in midair while still flying the plane. And I don't think outside of the energy sphere, it's probably appreciated actually the challenge that that, that involves. And, you know, you're trying to do that at a time where you're trying to keep customers happy and their bills low and, you know, policy mate and all the different stakeholders to be fair to them. So, so I don't, I don't think that, that, that challenge is perhaps appreciated outside of the energy sector. Yeah. I mean, we, we just, we just want to plug in our kettles, nice, regular, manageable low bill every month, don't we? That's basically it, but it's a bit more complicated than that, obviously, as you've explained. Yeah, that's right. But I'm sure, you know, if you ask somebody from the pharmaceutical industry what's underappreciated, you know, they would say, oh, people don't understand how difficult it is. You know, so, yeah. The world so, is complex. The world is complex. But I, I do think in in energy, it's it's that complexity is in the way because you flick a switch and the light goes on. But actually what's involved in, in doing that across the country is an immense undertaking, actually. Yeah, no, I've, I've certainly realised that from some of the conversations we've had on the other podcasts we've speaking to, speaking to Chris, speaking to Gurpal, speaking to Kyle, other people on our energy team. It's been fascinating to me getting into some of the detail of how this works. I had no idea, but I feel slightly more informed now. So, yeah. Okay, Andy, then final question. Any recommendations for good books or podcasts that we should get onto? Good books or podcasts? Well, podcasts, I would absolutely recommend for anyone interested in the energy transition. My fellow director, John Slow, does a podcast, Talking New Energy. And he's he's been running that for three years or so now, actually, for maybe four years. And there's a there's an archive of episodes available on our website or it's on all the sort of usual podcast platforms, Spotify and so forth. So Talking New Energy by John Slow, I'd really recommend that. And the, well, the, it's not a book. The other thing, I, for those interested in the energy transition, Delta, we're running a summit in Edinburgh on the 12th of October, which will cover many of the topics I've been talking about in this podcast, actually, around digitalization, electrification, flexibility, the home energy management, you know, what's what's happening in response to the current situation. So that's on the 12th of October in Edinburgh. So if there are any listeners who are interested in those topics, please, you know, you can visit our website and see the program. If you'd like to sign up to attend that, we'll, we'll be very happy to see you there. Cool. We'll, we'll link to that in the notes page for this episode that we always put out. And we'll maybe throw a couple of links to some of the relevant research and your favorite links to energy efficiency links and stuff as well. That people might want to check out. We'll put those all on the episode's webpage. Well, there we go. Andy, it's been a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for your time today. 
That's my pleasure, Dan. Thanks for giving me the opportunity to talk about these things. I feel really passionately about them. And you know, the demand side is, is coming to the fore of the energy transition now. So I think the next decade is going to be fascinating. Actually. Absolutely. And you've, you've really brought that out today. Thanks, Andy, for joining us. That's it from us this week on Investment Uncut. But join us again in two weeks time for another episode. Take care. Our podcast is for information and marketing purposes only and does not constitute any form of investment or financial advice. For more information, please refer to our marketing privacy policy on the LCP website.